okay? It's always slightly worrying when your wife doesn't quite know what you're going to do. <laughs> so, how do I call it? Let's call it preaching, shall we? Yeah. Wasn't that a great time of worship? Yeah, absolutely. Really encouraging. Thank you, guys. Um, I don't think they've actually played together before today, so it's really, really great to sort of see. And we're just excited about um, what God is, is doing. So if you'd like to take the Bibles, please. Um, turn to page 1134. Um, as you find Romans chapter 8, um, I'm just going to pray, and then I'll uh, start reading it. So. Lord, we want to thank you that what we're holding in our hands is the Word of God. It's not a word of man, it's not an opinion, it's not an insight, it's revelation. And thank you, Lord, that it's eternally true. Thank you that it speaks to the reality of our lives. And it brings a message of incredible good news of what you have done for us in Jesus. And we want to set aside the lie that the enemy is speaking. That he speaks the lie that nothing can change. And that even when you've become a Christian, nothing has changed. But we know, Lord, that when we came to Jesus, everything changed. And so we pray for insight and revelation tonight, Lord, as we look into your word, that you would show us about the incredible change that being found in Jesus makes. Uh, so we ask that you'd add your blessing to the reading of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, then they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. But it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we might also share in his glory. It's an amazing passage. It's incredibly dense. There's a lot to it. But running through it, there are just a number of really simple thoughts that I hope that tonight we'll be able to maybe grasp in a fresh way. Maybe the things that we haven't really heard for a while, or or perhaps you've never heard them before, but they are life-changing when you actually get your head round it, where you kind of like see what it means, and when you step into it and start to live it out. Now, I'm sure we're all familiar, uh, familiar with the Anvar Sohei, which is a collection of fables written in the 1500s by the Persian scholar Hussein Kashifi. Um, personally, I prefer his earlier work, but, you know, I mean, some, some people think that the, you know, the Anvar Sohei is kind of like where it peaks slightly, so um, I've got no idea, clearly. But I did remember a story I'd heard once, and I thought, well, look it up, because I'll just make sure I've got the story right and see where it's come from. And it turns out it comes from a, whatever that was, that said collection. And it's a, it's a fable. It's a fable of the turtle and the scorpion. Okay? And it runs something like this. So the turtle and the scorpion meet on the bank of the river. And the scorpion says, I would like to cross the river. And the turtle says, uh, I'm not taking you. The scorpion says, yeah, but you can swim. So if I could rode on your back, I could get to the other side of the river. Turtle says, yeah, but the problem is you sting. That's what you do. So if I carry you across, you will sting me. The scorpion says, well, that's stupid because if I sting you, you'll die. And if I'm riding on your back, we'll both drown together. So I'm not going to do that, am I? And the turtle says, all right, you've got a point there. Jump on. So the scorpion jumps onto the back of the turtle. They get down into the water and they start going across the river. Halfway across the river, The scorpion stings the turtle. And as the turtle starts to succumb to paralysis and as they both start to drown, the turtle kind of turns his head round, looks back at the scorpion and says, what did you do that for? And the scorpion says, I couldn't help myself. It's my nature. It's a really interesting story, isn't it? I couldn't help myself. It's my nature. So we're actually looking at a really significant thing tonight which is, can you help yourself? Can you overcome your nature? Is it possible that you could be transformed? Do you have to live the life with the struggles that you currently have? Now, this is a very, very current issue. Um, You'll be aware of some of the um, questions that are going on in the nation about identity. You'll perhaps be aware of some of the um, arguments that are going on in the church. And there's A heart behind it that is really, really good, which is we want to be welcoming and encouraging to everybody, whatever their choices in life. But there's also this other thing about we don't want to sacrifice the truth that the Bible is a good word that tells us a better story, or the truth that the Holy Spirit can bring about transformation in us. So nobody can sort of say, that's just the way I am, because God can potentially change any of us and be able to help us to grow into the image and the likeness of Jesus, which was broken and marred in us. God's image in us was broken when we fell, but it's being restored now as we uh, proceed in our new life with Jesus. So is transformation possible? 
or are we victims of our own nature? The, I'm sure every single one of us will have things in our life that we, we, we just wish we could overcome that kind of tendency or that habit or that cycle, that repeated thing that we keep going through. If that's you, if you can relate to that in any way tonight, if you desire to live a better life, then there's some really good news here. Now, as I've said before, as we go through Romans, we're coming across a very long argument, and this is another one of those passages that begins with the word, therefore. Okay, by now you know what I'm going to say. So whenever you see the word therefore, you need to ask yourself, what's it there for? Um, in other words, it's a linking word. It tells us that what came before is part of the same argument, and this is now a consequence. So the therefore, right at the beginning of chapter 8, refers back to chapter 7, which David was preaching on last week. And chapter 7 was all about how we are powerless to change ourselves. The chapter 8 now goes further, because we were powerless to change ourselves, and now in chapter 8 we discover that the law, the God-given law, the religious rules that God gave to the Jews, that's also powerless to change us. Which probably shouldn't be a surprise because it was never given with the intention that it might be the way for us to get right with God. It wasn't for that at all. That was never the point. Actually, if you look at the whole concept of the law, you'll, you'll realize, just a moment's reflection on the way the law works with us today in our own country, the law points out when we're doing something wrong, but it isn't in itself able to restrain us. So I thought, well, a good example of that would be the way that we drive. Um, and I thought, I'll look up a survey and I'll find out from research what's the average speed on a motorway. And I discovered that 46% of cars at any one time are exceeding the speed limit on a motorway in normal driving conditions. Obviously, M25, let's forget that. Um, but under normal driving conditions, 46% are going over 70 miles an hour on the motorway. Now, by the way, the 70 mile an hour limit is an absolute. It's not a suggestion. It's not a kind of like plus or minus 10% or anything like that. It's, it's basically, yeah, Tibbs is looking guilty. Um, she got here from Bristol very quickly. Yeah. Um, 52% exceed the limits on 30 mile an hour roads. 52%. Now, I wanted to get a point and satisfy my wife by confessing. So if you break the law, you get fines or points, right? Except they've discovered that fines and points don't change behavior. Except you, so instead, you might get offered a speed awareness course. This is what my wife is shouting out from the front row. Possibly I may have some experience of these things. And possibly more than once. Um, but the point is, the law says, this is what you should do, but the flesh in us, which is the weakness of our own nature, means you can't do it. You know, you, you should be able to do it, but you can't. And it becomes something, you know, more serious, really, because in chapter 7, the Apostle Paul, reflecting on his experience, is... Is, is just really desolate and devastated. He says, I find this law at work within me. The good that I want to do, I cannot do. And the very evil I do not want to do, that I find myself doing. And he says, who will rid me from this wretchedness, this body of sin? 
And anybody who has ever tried to lead a better life by turning over a new leaf and trying harder will be able to relate to this. I don't know how many of you are still going to the gym that you committed yourself to in January or still on that diet or, you know, still, you know, it's really, really hard to do things by willpower. That's the whole point of this. The good news of Romans 8 is that there is now a new power and a new principle at work. And it begins with these beautiful words. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, condemnation is a bit of a technical word, but you know it means you're guilty, you know you are, and we're going to pile it on you. That's what condemnation means. And it's really beautiful because it goes to the root of the way that the enemy works in our lives. Um, Satan, we have an enemy. He, he desires to steal, to kill, to destroy. Jesus has come in order that we might have life, and life it's all, in all its fullness. And what happens with the enemy is he basically just tempts us all the time. He goes, come on. Come on, come on, come on, come on. And then you fall down a pit. And that's, you feel guilty because you've fallen into a pit. But Satan goes for the double whammy because when you've fallen in the pit, he goes, you're worthless. It's your fault you fell in the pit. If everybody in the church knew what you're like and, you know, if they knew what you were like, if they discovered the things that you do, nobody would talk to you. And the difference between these two things is guilt is the conviction of the things that you've done that you know you're wrong you feel guilty shame is the person you think you've become it's an identity guilt is that feeling of something is wrong i've done something wrong i feel really bad about it shame is i have now changed to become a different less valuable less lovable less worthy person and satan operates with both and what this passage says is there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has dealt with guilt and shame. And um, Paul, kind of like, I guess it's a bit of a, bit of a Jewish pun, but he very cleverly uses the word law now in a different sense. Now, in the early part of the book, when he talks about the law, he means literally the Jewish law, the Torah, the, the commandments that were passed down by God through Moses to Jewish people. But he's now using law in the sense of um, an inevitability, like the inevitable result of something. So we talk about the law of gravity, right? So it was inevitable that if I let go of that thing, it's going to fall to the ground. Because the, there's, a, there's a principle at work. You can't escape it. And so what he's talking about now is, is not the Jewish law, the written commandments. He's actually talking about the inescapable law of sin and death which is you can't help yourself from committing sin because you're not a perfect person and you never will be. And the end result, inevitably, of committing sin is you turn your back on God and life and you end up embracing death because that makes you a smaller person. And ultimately, if you keep giving yourself to it, then your life will curl in on upon itself to a point of futility. The law of sin and death is all that our flesh can live out I, I um, grew up, um, my dad was in the bowls club, you know, um, so I don't know if you've ever played bowls, it's quite interesting actually, but um, it's not like 10 pin bowling where you put a little bit of you know, spin on it or stuff, but on the grass, um, when you bowl it, you can actually get it to bend, it bends round, it's very clever, you can like sneak things in round the back if they're blocked, and the reason you can do that is because the bowl is biased, it's heavier on one side than it is on the other side. 
And so um, you can actually get it to go really straight if you chuck it really hard. Except you can only do that for a while. Because sooner or later, gravity is going to kick in. And because gravity is going to kick in, the bias that is in the bowl is going to begin, it's going to begin turning. And that's a, and it's a brilliant picture, I think, of human life. We're biased. We are bent towards sin. We are bent towards doing the wrong thing. We are bent towards selfishness. We are bent towards pride. And we can try really, really hard to go in a straight line, but the reality is, sooner or later, the bias of our own nature is going to take over, and we're just going to start bending off. And that's when the Bible talks about things like sin. It, it just means things like missing the mark, falling short. That's what the Bible talks about, just not being perfect. But the more and more you give to yourself to it, the worse and worse it gets. But he says now there's a different law, a different principle, if you like, a different principle. So there was that law of sin and death, but now there is the law of, spirit, of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And um, Paul is here reintroducing the Holy Spirit. He hasn't actually mentioned that much in this book so far. So um, in the series we've been doing from chapter 5, the Spirit was mentioned in chapter 5 as the one who enables us to experience the love that God has poured into our hearts. So the Holy Spirit enables us to experience the fact that God loves us, and not just the fact, but actually the love that he has for us. He's poured into our hearts. That was in chapter 5. Chapter 6, no mention of him at all. Chapter 7, one mention of him, and just very, very briefly in verse 6, now we serve in the new way of the Holy Spirit. But he didn't tell us what it is. He just says there is a new way. Now, chapter 8 is all about the Holy Spirit. It's his chapter. He's all over this chapter. And what he's saying is we were powerless in chapter 7, but in the Holy Spirit, we are now empowered to live out a better story. If by the Spirit we are in Christ Jesus. And the idea is that Jesus' death is a sin offering, so it deals with our guilt. His resurrection is a new start for us, so it deals with our shame. We get to start as, you know, with his, his righteousness, not our own. And the Spirit is that new power, so we can live it out and start to make it real and actual rather than just potential. We can start to live out a better story. So it says in verse 3, what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, that means our own natural tendency to be selfish, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, he looked like us. He became one of us, yet without sin, but he was fully one of us. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be met, fully met, in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So what's the righteous requirement of the law? Because it's getting a bit technical. So the righteous requirement of the law was just this, to produce a bunch of people who loved and obeyed God as we should, as his creatures. That's all it was. And so when they came to Jesus and they said, Rabbi, what's the most important commandment in the law? Jesus said, well, I can't summarize it in one. I'll summarize it in two, though. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the most important thing. And the second is kind of commentary, because if you do that, you'll also love your neighbor as yourself. Because you'll recognize that your neighbor is in the image of God. And you'll be delivered as a lover of God from selfishness, and so you'll be able to love your neighbor as yourself. The law was created, 
the law was given to enable us, hopefully, to become a people that would love and obey God. The problem was we couldn't do it. And it's interesting here that he says that this righteous requirement is now fully met in us. It's not fully met by us, because that would imply it's our own efforts. It's fully met in us when we live according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. So the big question then is, well, what does according to mean? And if you remember, if you were here a few weeks ago, I spoke about Romans chapter 5, about two containers. I talked about being in Adam or being in Christ. And the idea was that um, the ancients used to think of, uh, of families not as trees. So that's our thing, isn't it? We think of a family, we think of you know, a branching family tree. The ancients used to think of families as containers. So Adam, within Adam, he contained the potential of all the people who are descended from Adam, which is all of us, right? So it's like within yourself, you have your descendants. It kind of makes sense biologically, doesn't it? Within yourself, you have your descendants. And so the way they would think is that anybody who descends from that is therefore in that person and therefore any blessing over that person or any characteristic of that person, you are in that. The problem with being in Christ, as we saw, is that, sorry, with being an Adam, as we saw, was that Adam made a mess of it. Whereas if you're in Christ, he got it right. And so you can enjoy the benefits that he won. He's now going to use some slightly different language. He's now going to talk about mindsets and realms. But it's basically the same thing again. So what he says is, living according to the Spirit is recognizing that if we're born again into Jesus, we've, we've changed container from Adam to Jesus, living according to the Spirit is recognizing that we are now powerful. We are no longer victims. We can no longer say, I couldn't help myself. That's a lie. So verse 5, and reading down that next little paragraph, it says, this needs to be our mindset. A mindset basically is the way that you set your mind, the truths that you hold in your mind that you live by. Um, I sometimes like the word worldview because it says the way that you see the world and interpret everything that's in it. And he'll come back to this a few chapters later, but you'll know the verse probably. Romans chapter 12, it says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's the same thing. He just picks it up after a little excursion talking about Israel for a few chapters. And what he's saying here in, in verses 5 to 11 particularly is what mindset have you got or, with other language, what realm do you live in? Now, what is your approach to your life and how you see yourself in the world with all the struggles that are common to all of us? He says, living according to something is really, basically, what mindset determines your actions. And living in the realm of is basically what power controls the things that you do. And so, whichever one of those bits of language you choose, mindset or realm, what he's saying is one leads to death and one leads to life. One leads you away from God, one leads you to God. And uh, verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, who who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life 
to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. That actually, if you, if you turn away from a mind set on the flesh and set your mind on the spirit, if you turn away from the realm of the flesh and you live in the realm of the spirit, if you live according to the spirit, then you're embracing life. And this is actually a life that ultimately will give life to your mortal bodies. It even that eternal life starts now, but it will lead to resurrection life um, for your physical body as well as you deteriorate. And then we get to verse 12. And you'll notice verse 12 is a therefore. Now, whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, I think you know by now, don't you? Okay. So in other words, it's another one of these like, as a result, therefore. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. Now, that's interesting because you know, well, I've got an obligation. I thought we were freed from obligation. We don't have to keep the law anymore. And what he's saying is, no, you don't have to keep the law. Which is actually really good news, because basically none of us can do it. There wasn't a single one of us that could keep the law 100%. So if we were told we had to keep the law, it would be a nightmare. But you're free from keeping the law as a way of getting right with God. You're not free from fulfilling what the law wanted to do, which is produce people who love God and love their neighbors. That moral obligation is still there. The law is no longer a way of acceptance but it is still a way of holiness. And then he comes to a couple of little for words. And again, similar sort of thing, isn't it? For, it's like, again, you're unpacking a bit more of the argument. And there's two really special ones in verse 14, or sorry, in verse 13 and in verse 14. In verse 13, he says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now, what he's basically saying is, for, you've got a choice. And one branch of that choice leads you to death, and one branch of that choice leads you to life. If you live according to the flesh, it's bad news. If you live according to the Spirit, it's good news. So going back to the speed awareness course, of which I have some familiarity... Um, the aim of the speed awareness course is to show you the consequences of your actions. And that's basically what Paul is saying here. Think about the consequences of your action. Whenever you choose what you know to be the wrong thing, ultimately, are you happy you chose it? And he's saying you really shouldn't be because when you choose what is wrong, you choose death. You may not realize it may be a little part, you know, step along the path it might be the easiest thing for the moment, but actually, ultimately, if you keep giving yourself to that choice, you will die. Whereas if you do the right choice, sometimes it's painful in the moment to make the right choice, but if you keep choosing life, you will live. Because God's way is a good way. It's a blessing. It's meant to give us life. The whole point of the speed awareness course is that you look at the consequences of excess speed like stopping distance, impact speeds, things like that, attention spans, those sorts of things. And when you see what could happen, you might change your behavior. And that's what Paul's appealing to here. Now, now we're free from condemnation for all of our sins. We've got an opportunity to change. And if you really see the consequences, you have an obligation to be sensible and make that change. So that was the first little fourth thing in verse 13. The second is in verse 14 and it's even more special. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. God doesn't just bring us power. He gathers us into his arms and he makes us his children. 
He brings us into his family. And, and when you are in the family, increasingly you want to take on the family likeness as you walk with him. For we are children of God. We're no longer slaves. We're not victims anymore. We're not constantly living in fear of getting caught out. The enemy can't shame us even when we sin. Because that's not our identity. We're in Christ and we have his identity to clothe us. His righteousness is what God sees when he looks at us. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and the love of God is with us. And we know that. It witnesses with us. So we find it bizarre that the holy God is one that we now instinctively want to worship as intimate father. Because we're drawn close and we're connected to him. And even more than that, we're co-heirs with Christ. Now, it's pretty amazing that God could take a bunch of people like us who are so different and make us brothers and sisters, right? It's pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, to be honest, look at the person and write. Isn't it even more amazing that God could say that we're brothers and sisters with Jesus? Yeah? We, <laughs> sorry about that. Um, we, are, we, we are brothers and sisters with Jesus. And if we're brothers and sisters with Jesus, with equal standing in his eyes with Jesus, then we're co-heirs with Jesus. And everything that Jesus is going to inherit through his righteousness, somehow we also get to inherit and enjoy ourselves as well. Now that is something that could powerfully, powerfully change us. And this is where it kind of comes home to roost. So are you a victim are you somebody who can't change your behavior? I couldn't help myself. It's just who I am. It's my nature. Or are you somebody who's had all of that past dealt with, who, who's got an identity that you don't deserve and couldn't ever achieve, who now has a power at work within you, that even though you're going to mess up and stumble and fall and get it wrong sometimes, but there's a power at work within you that is empowering you to say no to the wrong things, yes to the right things, and to start walking out life with God. Because when you're that kind of person, then you're able to truly live, and you're able to come into a family where you can enjoy the love of God and know that you have a secure future of incredible blessing. That's why this is such a great chapter. It basically says to the enemy, you can't mess with their minds, and you can't mess with their bodies. They're on a pathway that's going to lead them into the fullness of life. So we'd love to respond to that tonight because I think, I think there has to come a moment in every single person's life where they consciously choose to be in Christ and not in Adam. They consciously choose to reject living according to the flesh, a mind set on what the flesh desires, the realm of the flesh, being under that power, and consciously choose to say, I would like to accept what you have done for me, Jesus. That I would like to accept your offering of yourself in my place. I would like to accept your righteousness in exchange for my own. I would like to come under the power that you lived out perfectly. The love of God, the power of the Holy Spirit. And for every single one of us, that's the choice that we need to make. To cross from what the Bible calls darkness into light. Now, if you're sort of saying, yeah, yeah, I did that, it was a glorious day in 1932. Are you living it out, though? Because we have an obligation to live, not according to the old, but according to the new. And sometimes there's, there's, there are other surrenders as we go on in the Christian life. Not where we say yes to Jesus for the first time, 
but where we say yes to him all over again. John Wimber famously said, the way in is the way on. The way in is the way on. The way that we came to God in the first place is the way that we keep going on with God if we want to become more and more like him. So do you want to stand? Uh, Band, if you'd like to come back. Thank you, guys. This is something that we do in our church all the time. So every service that we have in some way, we want to give an opportunity for people to respond to God for themselves. Not just to listen to a preacher, not just to listen to music and the worship or be led in prayers, but to listen to what God might be saying to them personally. And so the way that we commonly do that is we ask in a moment of quiet for God to come close to us. He's here, but when we say come, what we're saying is make yourself more evident. Help us to be more aware of you. And then we try and follow what it is that you might want us to do in response. And, and sometimes that actually involves us praying with each other. Some, perhaps somebody to agree with you in prayer. And to maybe even lay a hand on you and pray that the more of God that you're asking for, their faith will be added to your faith for you to receive that. So Holy Spirit, we want to thank you for this incredible chapter in which you are so evident. Draw close as we draw close to you. Make your love and your truth known to each one of us here tonight. the first thing I'd like to do is I would like to pray that every single person here tonight will know the assurance of their sins forgiven. A passage began, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And some of us, we, we struggle with that thought. Um, we, we think we're only as good as our best time with God. That's the you know, when we're doing really well, he might like us. But when we know that we're messing up and maybe even habitually giving ourselves to sin, and we think, you know, I'm, I'm, I've gone away from him too far that he could really, he could no longer love me as he used to. And it's not true. That's actually the lie of the enemy. You might even, um, if that's, you know, that insecurity plagues you, perhaps want to put your hand on your heart. I say to you, there is no condemnation. There's no condemnation. Satan can never tell you that you're a bad person. He can never make you feel ashamed. Because when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness and the perfection and the beauty of Jesus that clothes you. There is no condemnation because through Jesus' righteous offering, all the righteous requirements of the law are met 
Spirit of God brings you alive. And the sin and shame has gone on to the cross. It died with Jesus. So receive your forgiveness. You are forgiven by your Father. You are cleansed from all unrighteousness. You are set free from all guilt, all shame. You are released from bondage, slavery. So all that is wrong. You are no longer controlled by your sinful nature or by the lies of the enemy. So receive the joy of your salvation. No condemnation. Free in Christ. And if you, if you said yes to Jesus consciously, if you'd never done that before, that's what, I mean, that's what we mean by becoming a Christian. But let's build now that potential new life into an actual new life. Let's see those patterns of sin and death broken in us. Let's learn to walk in the Spirit, to make those choices that lead to life, not to death. So if you, if tonight you're praying that sort of prayer for the first time, then we'd love someone to pray with you. We've actually got a few little booklets on the piano down here on your left. You just come down during the prayer time. One of the ministry team, one of the prayer team would just like to maybe talk to you, pray for you, give you something. And then we're going to use the space at the front to ask God to break patterns in our life to ask God to help us to walk out a holy life you know if you come forward for prayer tonight it's not a sign that you're massively sinful nobody's going to think that it's a sign that you desire a closer walk with God and more of that reality in your life so as we worship let's encourage you let's use this space let's embrace the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus Let's live according to the Spirit. Set our minds on the Spirit, in the realm of the Spirit. Let's press on. Let's worship. Ministry team, if you want to start to come out. If you'd like to receive prayer, you start to come as well. We're going to spend this time really pressing into what God has made available for us in Jesus and through Jesus. As we worship. Thank you.